You're listening to the weekly teaching podcast of Beaverton Christian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. We hope that what you hear today inspires you to laugh, question, think, and grow. If you'd like to connect with us even further, hit us up online at beaverton.cc or send us a direct message on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. It's really fun to have a great uh, series that we're in about the book of Acts, because a lot of the things that we see in the book of Acts, um, we still try to do as best as we can today. We're living out the same mission that Jesus gave the apostles to go into the whole world, to preach the good news, to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. And we really do believe that if we live that way, that God's kingdom will come and God's will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And that's a really beautiful, beautiful life to live. Now, as we've been going through this series, last week we saw somebody that was literally the last person anyone expected to give their life to Jesus, give their life to Jesus. His name was Saul, right? And he hated the Christians, he hated the church, he persecuted it, he killed people. And then when he was transformed, people had a really hard time believing it. They didn't believe he had changed and they were scared. They lived in fear of what might happen. So it took a little bit of time. It took a little bit of time for him to demonstrate with consistency that he now followed Jesus. And what ended up happening is he possessed a unique advantage and that unique advantage transformed the way the gospel was spread, how it was shared, how people's lives were changed. And I want you to know that a unique advantage is always something that provides unexpected opportunity and unanticipated success. The question is whether or not we know what our unique advantage is and whether or not we're leveraging it. So I want to show you this uh, map, right? In 1941, the empire of Japan covered a lot of the Asia Pacific, And not only that, they had defeated Russia in two wars and they were expanding. You can look and see how much of China has been taken over at this point. And they have almost all of the South Seas. Now, they were able to accomplish this from just a tiny island in the Pacific because they had an unfair advantage. There was a man, he was an admiral in their navy. His name was Isoroku Yamamoto. And Isoroku Yamamoto was a genius. He was a genius of tactics and logistics. See, if you're going to send your people out to conquer other people, you got to have supply chains set up or else, well, I don't have to explain supply chain issues to anybody in this room, do I? (laughs) You're still waiting for some of those things that you've ordered two years ago. You can't have that happen if you're going to expand. Now, here's the thing, right? This expansion that came because of his brilliance and his capability meant that there was a coming conflict that the people of Japan knew was going to take place. You see, the United States had defeated Spain in a war and the United States had territories overseas. Now, we call them territories. They were colonies. And so the island of Guam in the Pacific, much of the Philippines were administrated by the United States government. And so as Japan expanded, it was going to bring them into conflict with the United States. And the United States Navy was stationed on the islands of Hawaii. And so Admiral Yamamoto realized they needed to strike while the Navy was as far away from Guam and the Philippines as they could. 
Now, he wasn't just a genius and he wasn't just good at planning and he wasn't just good at logistics. He also had been educated in the United States at Harvard. So he spoke fluent English and he spent eight years attached to the United States government as a Japanese envoy. So he deeply understood the American mind. He was as close to being an American as a person in Japan at that time could get. So on December 7th, 1941, the Japanese military executed his strategy, which was not just to invade Hawaii, we talk a lot about this, to attack the United States Navy at Pearl Harbor. On that same day, the Empire of Japan also attacked Guam, the Philippines, Wake Island, any place that the United States held and further expanded their territory. And it was a big gamble. Could they use this advantage to grow and achieve something and then maintain that advantage so that the United States would quit the war? We'll give up everything we have over there because it will be too hard to take back. It was a pretty good gambit. The problem is that the United States began developing its own unique advantage. You see, back in the day, uh, they didn't have the internet, computers, or satellites. So if you wanted to send a message, you had to say something out loud or you had to write it down. And if you say something out loud over the radio, anyone else can hear it. And if you write down a message, anyone can intercept it. So coded language became essential for any government that was at war. You had to find a way to communicate with your people without somebody else finding out about it. And so the United States realized that a lot of work goes into writing codes and deciphering codes. But the best codes are languages that already exist that nobody else knows. And the United States had a population of people who spoke languages nobody else understood. These were the native peoples of the Americas. And so whether it was Choctaw, whether it was Comanche, whether it was Navajo, all of these languages already existed and so these soldiers went to work and all they had to do was speak their own language and their own language was so adaptable that adding military technology was very confusing to people trying to decode what they were saying. Not only were they hearing languages that were not based in Latin or any uh, Asian language, these languages were so confusing because words would be made up to fill in military terminology. For instance, there's no Navajo word for submarine. So a submarine was called an iron fish. Now imagine if you're a native Japanese speaker listening to someone speak a language you can't figure out. And even if you think you've got it figured out, guys, they're sending iron fish from here to here. It doesn't help you. This allowed the United States to spend their free time breaking the codes of Imperial Japan. Now, here's something you want to know. When you get an advantage, you've got to maintain that advantage. And so when the United States broke Japan's imperial code, the hardest code, they realized if we act on this right now, it will reveal that we have broken their code. We've got to wait for something big to happen. We've got to wait for something that we can flip the advantage board in our favor. And so they waited a year. And in 1943 they finally got word that Admiral Yamamoto would be flying from one island to another island in the South Pacific. And they sent a squadron of P-38s to intercept his plane and shot it down and told no one. He died and was removed from the board and the advantage flipped. And the United States goes on to win the war. 
the unique advantage of intelligence superseded the unique advantage of logistics and tactics. But it took work. And whenever we discover a unique advantage, if we leverage it, we can produce unanticipated victories. And this is something we see with this man, Saul. You see, this man, Saul, trusts Jesus. His life changes so much that the people of the first church said, we're just gonna start calling you Paul. We'll go by your Greek name because you are a different person than they used to be. And they began sending him and his friends out traveling to do ministry in places that people hadn't been yet because Paul had a unique and distinct advantage that the rest of Jesus' apostles did not have. We talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago that the Roman world operated with a hierarchy with Roman citizens at the top and slaves at the bottom. The apostle Paul was a Roman citizen. And we talked about this, that Jesus and his disciples would have been freedmen. So they had some level of freedom, but they did not have access to the best education. They didn't have access to protection from the federal government of Rome. They didn't have the freedom to travel and do commerce in the way that other people did. So Paul actually becomes God's instrument, just like he prophesied, to the Gentile people spread across the world. And Paul's unique advantage is going to get the good news of Jesus into Europe for the first time. Now, we're going to look at three things that the Apostle Paul did with his unique advantage, three things that changed the world, three things that established the world we live in today, and three things we need to continue to do if we're going to leverage our unique advantages to see people come to trust Jesus. So when the Apostle Paul goes out on his voyages, he oftentimes goes with different people. One of them is Dr. Luke, who we talked about having written the hit song called the book of Acts. And the other is his friend Silas. And so we'll see what they do as they travel here in the book of Acts. The first thing that Paul does, he and his friends, they cared for the first Christians in two unique ways. The first is they trained up new leaders and the second is they raised money. In Acts 16, verse one, it says this, Paul first went to Derby. You're gonna hear a lot of place names um, that have changed since then. Um, but I'll show you a map a little bit later. It'll make a little more sense. Paul went first to Derby and then to Lystra where there was a young disciple named Timothy. So there's this young man named Timothy and it tells us that his mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. This means he worshiped pagan gods. He was from a different ethnicity and he had citizenship within the empire. Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium. So Paul wanted him to join them on his journey. Paul is maintaining his unique advantage by identifying two really important things. The first is that Timothy can straddle both parts of the ancient world. The part of the ancient world that is pagan and Roman and the part of the ancient world that is Jewish and faithful. And he's choosing this young leader based on his godly character. I want you to notice what it says. It doesn't say Timothy was super hot and looked great in amazing jeans and he had a sweet V-neck. So he was one of the best worship leaders anybody ever heard. It says Timothy was well thought of by the believers. He was young and he had skills and talents, but he had 
kind of godly character that caused him to be well thought of by the other believers. Paul was deeply interested in not just maintaining the advantage that they had just discovered, but he also wanted to push leadership down and out. I want you to know that in anything, whether it's business or whether it's church, when leadership is held tightly by one person, it doesn't recognize the gifts and abilities of anyone else and it centralizes things within itself. It can't help but be all about one person. Paul doesn't want the church to be all about him and his gifts and abilities. Paul wants everyone to grow, and so he's looking for a younger person so that he can train, so that he can equip, and that he can provide opportunities to. This is essential for us, right? Anything that's gonna live beyond you needs to be passed down to a young person, and you're not just telling them what you know, and you're not just giving them what they need, you're also giving them space, providing them with opportunities, because if they don't get opportunities, it's all a waste. They went from town to town, instructing the believers to follow the decisions made by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. And so the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. Whoever you trust to put in charge of something is who you will see. You know why a lot of churches don't have young people in them? Because they don't give young people opportunities to lead. They don't identify young people with godly character, invest in them, and then give them space. Can I tell you one of the most important things about this church? One of the most important things about this church is we never want to be known as Beaverton Christian Church, insert person's name. And this is true of many churches. And it's not something that people set out intentionally to do. Oh, have you heard about Mountainside Christian Fellowship, Pastor Barry Zuckercorn presiding? The minute a church gets associated with a man's name, things are about to go wrong. Because every church needs to be associated with one name, the greatest name, the name by which we are all saved, Jesus Christ. And the number one way we do this is by not building around one person's skills, talents, and abilities. That's how cults of personality appear. And if you want to kill a cult of personality, you invest in the spiritual gifts of other people. Unless we acknowledge our own limitations as people and invest in other people, we won't become a body of Christ will be a giant eyeball or a giant mouth. And I think the world has had enough of that, don't you? So this explains why many Sundays you'll see me here milling around the lobby, talking to people, praying with people, encouraging people, getting to know people, while someone like Marty or Megan or Grant preaches. Because you don't just invest in young leaders, you also provide opportunities. You step back and allow people to step in. It pushes leadership down and out, and that's what grows a church. And it may feel like a sacrifice, but it's only a sacrifice for our egos when we invite other people into leadership. It actually frees us up to do those new things that Jesus calls us to. See, every year, young people, they graduate, and whether they graduate from college, or they graduate from high school, or they're moving from the K-4 to the K-5 or into elementary school, people are being trained and equipped 
and they're looking for those opportunities. And if you find people and you encourage and invite them into leadership, they're going to continue to grow and develop to become more like Jesus and churches will look more like Jesus and God's kingdom will come in ways that are beautiful. But you have to see young people as part of the solution, not as part of the problem. I mean, isn't it, it's really easy to badmouth millennials, isn't it? No, you guys aren't hearing that anywhere? No, these participation trophies have ruined America. No millennial ever asked for a participation trophy. They were given to them by the actual people who ruined things. They ruin everything when they get involved. Yeah, because it changes. And as we talked about last week, change, it's hard. It challenges us. It drives us to Jesus. New solutions to old problems are found by inviting new minds into it. This is how the church works now, and it's how the church has always worked when the church works. That's why Paul eventually tells Timothy, those things you heard me say in the presence of faithful people, entrust those to other faithful people. You and I are here today because Paul poured his life into Timothy. Timothy poured his life into others. And when we make room for this to happen, we see the church continue to grow and thrive. Now, the second thing Paul did is he cared for the church by collecting money and making sure it got spread out. Now, I don't know if you know this, but back in the ancient times, 2,000 years ago, they didn't have like wire transfers. They didn't have Venmo. They didn't have PayPal. If you wanted to get paid, your pal had to take gold and walk from where they were to where you were, which guess what that did? It created a dangerous situation because if you knew somebody's walking around carrying gold, well, now it's my gold. So the Roman Empire came up with a solution to this. They wanted to grow their commerce, so they paved roads from point A to point B all across the empire. These roads still exist today throughout the ancient world. And then once they made it easy for people to get from place to place, they stationed soldiers at intervals to make commerce safe. So the Apostle Paul realized that the churches that are doing well can help the churches that are not doing well by getting money and then he as a citizen could transport it from place to place because he had access to the roads. And we see this all throughout Paul's writings. He's regularly saying, I'll go from point A to point B, but before I do that, I've got to get the money from point C to point D. It's pretty incredible, right? Like he even says to the Romans, hey, I want to come to Rome and preach to you guys. But before I get there, I got to look, Romans chapter 15, verse 25. But before I come, I must go to Jerusalem to take a gift to the believers there. For you see, the believers in Macedonia and Achaia have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. The church of Jerusalem, the original church, fell on really hard times. There was a famine, so that crushed the economy. Then opposition came and killed their pastor. They even locked up the apostle Peter. And so Paul said, hey, you churches who are doing well, you wouldn't even know about Jesus if it wasn't for the folks back in Jerusalem. And they eagerly gave their money to see the church in Jerusalem continue and be successful. This is the way church works, right? We have in America the separation of church and state. No money comes from the government for church to happen. It comes from the people who attend a church. 
And if the people who attend the church don't give to the church, the church can't exist. And the church can't continue to do the ministry that we see having taken place from the very beginning. We're not embarrassed to talk about money. We're embarrassed to spend money badly. We're not embarrassed to talk about money because people should be enthusiastic to give to see the ministry of Jesus grow. Many of you guys know that in 2016, this church was struggling. This church was struggling not because people didn't love Jesus and not because they wanted to see good things happen. It was struggling because life is hard. Things had changed. Reactions, fresh blood needed to come in and make a difference. And so in 2016, I ended up here. BJ ended up here because Willamette Christian Church in West Lynn said, we're doing well. We see a church that is struggling. What can we do not to give a church a fish, but to teach a church to fish? You want to know something really beautiful? That story about how this church transformed isn't the whole story. It's just part of the story. See, in the 1950s, Oregon City Christian Church decided to launch a church in West Lynn. But they didn't have enough money for a pastor. So they contacted Beaverton Christian Church, which had been around since the 1920s. And Beaverton Christian Church sent its money to pay for the first pastor at Willamette Church of Christ. So this church sponsored Willamette first. And Willamette came back around to sponsor this church. Even during this church's time of crisis, it still believed in this so much that they planted a church in Cochabamba, Bolivia, which still is there to this day, which we still support. Almost every kid in the village is sponsored by somebody in this church because we believe in investing in education and the good news of the gospel to see worlds transformed. And whether that's in Japan or whether that's in the Caucasus or that all across the, the world, when you give money to this church, you are supporting the churches who cannot support themselves. And we never pay anything back because we can't pay God back. We always pay things forward to see the gospel spread. So in 2018, we actually raised money here to help renovate Milwaukee Christian Church and moved Hope City Church and Milwaukee Church together for them to have, they're worshiping right now because we believe this so strongly. God has given us a unique advantage so that when we succeed, his kingdom succeeds, not we succeed. If we hold on to it, if we hang on to it, it's a failure. So when you drop your money in the give and connect boxes, you are funding ministry, not just here, but all across the world. Second thing we see the Apostle Paul doing. Paul followed the Holy Spirit's leading to reach people that no one was reaching. The very next few verses, Acts 16, verse 6 and 7 say this. Next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia. Phrygia sounds cold, doesn't it? I don't know how hot it was. but Because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. They then headed north to the province of Bithynia. But again, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. Sometimes God tells us, don't do this. This is not your opportunity. This is not for now, it's for later. 
If we're listening to the voice of God's spirit, he will guide us to what he has called us to do. So the very next verse says this, right? So instead, they went through Mysians to the seaport of Troas. And while they're spending the night in Troas, right? That night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. So this is where they were, right? Here's the map of the ancient world. They're in Galatia over here, which is now present-day Turkey. There's the city of Troas where they're having their prayer. And God says, I want you to go across to Macedonia. Now, do you see the regions of Macedonia? Philippi. That's where we get the book of Philippians in our Bibles from. Thessalonica. That's where we get the two books of Thessalonians from. Down into Corinth. That's where we get First and Second Corinthians from. By crossing from Asia into Europe, new churches are planted. People who've never been reached get reached before. And it's these Macedonians who give gratefully to, for Paul to return back to Jerusalem and deliver the money. It's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's why churches have to exist for the people who have not trusted Jesus yet. This is such a hard concept for us. We like to think churches are places for us to come and study. They are. We like to think of them as places for us to come be comfortable away from the world. Sanctuaries provide that. But if everything that is being done here is not being done to make new disciples... then our comfort is ultimately worthless. This is why we support ministries to college campuses. It's where we're going to invest in young people who trust Jesus, see lives changed. And you know what? That's hard, right? You meet somebody who does ministry. Sonia? Okay, so we got a whole family of people spend their time they would hate for me to point them out. So I'm not going to, I've actually, I'm sorry, I've already said Sonia's name. So I'm going to say John's name too. They have great kids. You meet people that willingly walk onto a college campus to talk about Jesus, they believe, right? That's something we support because that's how we see the world change. Looking to see people who are far from God come close to God. This is why we're not trying to build a church from transfer growth. We're not trying to get you to tell your already Christian friends to come here. Can I tell you something? Christians can be the worst, can we not? We show up and we want things our way. We want people to do the things the way we like them. And we very rarely tell people who don't know about Jesus about Jesus. You know who tells people about Jesus the most? People who just trusted Jesus. And they know the most people who don't know Jesus. So we look to do the ministry of Jesus to people who need it the most. And we believe that God will constantly call us into places where this will happen. But it comes from listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit and surrendering and submitting to what God asks, not doing what feels right to us. You know, I mentioned in 2016 that I ended up here because the folks at Willamette Christian Church reached out. That's a good part of the story, but it's not the whole story. You see, in 2015, I was on staff at Willamette Christian Church and myself and a whole new group of elders and a whole new group of people raised about $2 million so that we could launch a church 
in Tualatin off the 99, where there were neighborhoods, but no churches, because it's not our job to squash what God is doing through other churches in other areas. We think there's plenty of great churches. We want to go to places to reach people that no one is reaching. And we looked at like 65 different locations to try to find a spot, and we just couldn't. For a year and a half, we prayed, we asked God, and he kept saying no, he kept saying no, he kept saying no, he kept saying no, not this, not this, not this. And we were like, did we hear you wrong? And then BCC raised its hand and said, come over here and help us. And that's when we realized why God had said no all those other times. He actually had something better. He had something better. Were we going to trust him with something better? And so the adoption process took place. New ministry took place. But it took praying for a year and a half and hearing so many no's that it felt really discouraging. The only way things changed was we said, no, you know God. You have given us a distinct advantage. You are asking us to leverage it. We have these resources. Where do you want it placed? And he made it really clear. Because you know what churches rarely do? They rarely admit they need help. And that was the sign that God was at work and moving and people had good character. And we said, that's where the investment needs to go. Maybe you've been in a situation like this where you don't know what to do. And you think, should I say something? Should I do something? Should I invest my time? Should I invest my money? One of the first things you should look for is, has somebody asked for help? Because if not, we just turn into the Budinskis. You know what I'm talking about. Thanks, but I didn't ask. We water what grows and see God produce good results. Lastly, right, we see the Apostle Paul sharing the good news about Jesus in both ways and words that people could understand. Ways and words that people could understand. The Apostle Paul eventually travels south. He gets into Athens, the capital of the Greek-speaking world. And when he's there, he's wandering through the city and he's just heartbroken because the whole city is filled with idols, right? Statues built for worship, made out of marble, made out of silver, made out of gold, And as he begins engaging with people and saying, hey, why are you worshiping like this? And he begins talking about Jesus. They're like, this man Paul is saying some interesting things. And they invite him basically to the philosopher's hall. They invite him to come and address the intelligentsia, the Illuminati of the region, as it were. And so the apostle Paul sits down and you know what he says? He says this, right? He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by human hands. Hey, there is a God and he does not live in temples and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God doesn't depend on us to make him a house. He doesn't depend on us to make an image out of him. He doesn't even depend on us to worship him. He gives us everything we have. And then he goes on to say this, right? From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. He's created the whole world, every person in every place. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him 
though he is not far from any of us. This is a message of hope from the Apostle Paul. God is real and active and present and he wants you to reach out to him and he is not far from you. Now watch what he drops on them here in verse 28. It says this, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. These two quotes are not from the Bible. They're in our Bible, but they're not even from Christians. The first one, for in him we live and move and have our being. That's from Epimenides of Crete. He was a Cretan. And this was his poem, right? They fashioned a tomb for who? Zeus. Holy and high one. Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, and idle bellies. So when we refer to somebody as a Cretan, their own poet is basically saying, guys, this is kind of us, right? But you are not dead. You live and abide forever, Zeus. For in you we live and move and have our being. He's quoting someone who's not even a Christian about something Christians don't agree with. The second one comes from Eratus of Greece, the philosopher. He begins to talk about, let us begin with Zeus, whom we mortals never leave unspoken. Look at the last line. For we indeed are his offspring. His philosophy of life, every one of us is a child of God. So we have rights that come from divinity. The Apostle Paul quotes these two things. You know what he's saying is, hey, you guys know this. I want to talk about what you do know to point you to someone you do not know. These are concepts that you believe, but let me show you where they really come from. We do have our being from God and we are his children. But he goes on to say this instead. He says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. He's pointing them away from what they should not pursue. An image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commends all people everywhere to repent, to turn from what they were doing and to turn to Jesus. He's giving them the gospel, but the little bit of bait he's put on the hook is something that they can grasp. He's using words and ways of speaking they can get. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from there is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Here is your hope. This is a really cool moment, right? It's like if I was to tell you, hey, you guys, look, do not live your life trying to have an abundance of possessions or to be greedy, two verses from the Bible, because more money, more problems. That is a line from the great American philosopher, Biggie Smalls. It's like me saying there is a part of every one of us that has to die in limbo. Harry Potter and Dumbledore see the maimed creature that is the remains of Voldemort and Harry that has to die and be left and walked away from. God needs to kill that bit of our flesh that is infected with sin to grow us to become more like Christ. You see, we use the words and the ways of the world to point to the dynamic truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we do it, we're speaking a language they can understand. And so much of languages we need to understand are not words, they're ways that match words. 
So when we tell our neighborhood that we love them, we care about them, we have to do things that they can understand because they are usually never going to come in here. One of my favorite things that's ever been said uh, about church by my friend Brian Becker, who's the pastor over in West Lynn, he said this, I drive by like Joanne Fabrics. I'm sure it's a great store, but I'm never going in there because they got nothing in there I want. And they can put a sign that says 100% off. I'm never going in there because they got nothing in there I want. That's how most people think about church. Based on reputation, based on previous experience, we could put anything we want on the sign. We can say anything we want. There's nothing in here that they want. The difficulty is everything that they need is here. And if we don't say it in a way and in words that they can understand, we're not saying it. So this is why when we reach out to our community, we do it outside the doors of the building. So the, the summer concert, it's also why we don't play Lord, I lift your name on high at the concert. <laughs> Ain't nobody got time for that. Saying we care about you and want to supply your needs in a way that they can understand. It's why we did the trunk or treat at Halloween. This is a safe place for you and your family to be. Let us love you and care for you. Provide something that you need. You know what we heard over and over and over again after the, the movie night? We heard people say, hey, the world has started to come back, but it's, it's only come back for the necessities. All of the elective fun things are not happening, and when they do, they cost a lot of money. It's why we do healthcare clinics, and whether that's with vaccinations or it's with Compassion Connect, we have the opportunity to meet actual physical needs. It's why we serve the folks at Fir Grove and not just $9,000 for school supplies, not just Christmas gifts, actually going and cleaning up their school like we're janitors because they're teachers. We can do that. They don't need to. So this should compel us to think if the church did these things, if Paul did these things, if we can do these things, how can we leverage our, our opportunities, our unique advantages to continue this, to maintain it, to see it grow? Well, the first is, how could you encourage someone who's gonna come next? How do you pour into the next people? The church isn't about coming and taking and enjoying. You should come and take and enjoy, but you should also give. This is why we say, hey, attend one, serve one. Attend one service, serve at another. The people who come next need people to pray with them and listen to them. As they hear the voice of God, tell them no to this and yes to this. No to this and yes to this. Yes, more of this. And so whether that's in children's, whether that's in youth, whether that's in home communities, men's or women's, you can play this role. If you are following Jesus, you can help someone else follow Jesus just by being a good listener and just by being a good prayer. You start taking those steps, you will start growing. We'll have people out in the lobby wearing badges. Talk to me about how to serve. We'll even put donuts on the hook. You can go talk to them. They've got donut holes. It's amazing. I'd love to see you grow, find your place in service and community by engaging with the people who will come next. How can you encourage them? Second, how could you reach out to people that no one else is reaching out to? See, you have a unique advantage. It's the Holy Spirit that speaks to your heart, the still small voice inside you that comes from Jesus' new life in you. And so when you 
take it seriously and listen, you'll recognize him saying things. Maybe it's the person who gives you your coffee. Maybe it's the person who delivers your packages. Maybe it's the person who cuts your hair. Maybe it's the person that you see crying. Maybe it's the person that you see who is angry. Showing up and listening. Inviting. This is a unique advantage that we have. We have faith that God will work when we step out in faith, trusting that he will meet us. How could you reach out to people that they're probably gonna have a weird haircut? It may be a different color. Parts, some parts of their body are gonna be pierced. They've probably got tattoos. That's not a problem, actually. It's not too late and no one's ever too far. And lastly, how could you speak to someone in a way that they can understand? How can your words and your actions match up? That the truth that you speak about Jesus matches the truth of your life. And this looks like making room and providing opportunities. I'd love to see you succeed. How can I invest in you? And then following that up with a really simple statement, when I didn't have what I needed, when I had no rightness or righteousness of my own, Jesus gave his life so that I could receive his. He died to himself and physically died so that I could live. I I want to die to myself so that you can find life in him. The one thing that Jesus did, he asks us all to do, and it's the one thing that stands in our way. How could we die to ourselves? Maybe it's financing it. Maybe it's spending your time. It's probably both, because those are both ways that will match our words. But when we live this way, it's in Jesus that we live and move and have our being. Let's pray. God, we just praise you for the work that we see taking place around us, for the work you've called us to, for how we can serve because we have been served. And so today I pray that you would challenge us, lay it on our hearts, cause us to listen to the voice that you speak to us and give us joy as we do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about faith and community, we'd love to hear from you. Also, we want to let you know about our podcast regarding action. Each week we recap the message and then have a chat about what stood out, why it matters, and how the gospel is leading us to action. You can find it at the link below or wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks again, and have a great week.